Hey folks, Gerald Kirk here, and I'm excited to share that this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast is supported in part by the Alabama Humanities Alliance, a state affiliate of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of Alabama Humanities Alliance or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Higher Ground Society podcast, uh, the podcast where we reach out and connect with Alabama creatives and authors, and we get into their minds to understand um, their work and highlight their work and, and see how they're inspired. And uh, it's it's a great day for the Higher Ground Society podcast because my guest today is pretty incredible. Uh, I have with me um, Dr. Imani Perry. Hello, Dr. Perry. Hi, please call me Imani. It's lovely to be here. Right. Great, great. Yeah, thank you. Um, so again, as custom with the podcast, we try. I like for people to kind of define themselves for the for our guests. So um, I will just, if you will, just tell us who, who you are. Um, let's see. I am a I am a professor. I am a native, specifically not just of Birmingham, but of Inslee. Um, and 16th Street and Avenue Y. Um, I am a mother, I'm a daughter, a, 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 a granddaughter, um, a Perry, um, which has a particular <laughs> meaning, um, and an intellectual, and a writer, um, and an artist. And um, yeah, that's, I guess that's it. That's a very succinct biography for someone who's is really I think um you know giving us so much uh adding so much to our collective cultural knowledge and, and history uh and and it's done so through I mean, obviously she does talks and and that sort of thing and she's lecturing and educating the next generation but she's a, an author as well um and so that's actually the one of the reasons why I was super like trying to get on Imani's radar because I was re actually reading an article that you did with Harper's Weekly, oh, yeah. I think, um, that was specifically talking about Alabama and like the Mobile area. And I was like, oh yeah, that's really great. But then I think a colleague told me, oh, well, you know, she's writing a book about the South. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> so I've been obsessed with the uh, the idea of, of this book coming out first and foremost. And it was just released about two weeks ago, right? Uh, and um, I've been obsessed about it coming out and obsessed about consuming it. And it was absolutely incredible. Uh, the book is called South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. Like, Y'all, you can just marinate on that title for a second <laughs> and, and, and get your feels and thrills. But um, the book is absolutely incredible. And uh, I want to have to tell you, too, it's going to be very strange for me to just call you Imani. But <laughs> so bear with me. 
<laughs> uh, but Imani, um, would you please just tell us like what prompted you to write South to America? Yeah, well, um, I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna answer it in a little bit of a long-winded way. Go for it. I wanna go back to that piece in Harper's, which is really the piece, it was 2016, that's the piece that opened the door. So I, you know, I, my, we moved out of Alabama when I was very young for my mother to go to graduate school. First she had a job in Wisconsin, then she went to graduate school. And, but at that point I had already developed a, a firm identity associated with home. And so, and combined with that, um, I didn't spend, so we moved up to Massachusetts, but I didn't spend any holidays or the summer in Massachusetts. So I was always leaving, right? This was, I had a story of a life where I was, I departed and I was always coming home. Like mm-hmm. this, I traveled more than most children. And I was born in 1972. I, I traveled more than most kids of my generation. Um, and so they had, so I had this very strong sense of home. Well, as it turns out, I was invited to do this program some years ago, um, and honoring Albert Murray, who um, is, you know, uh, was was an Alabama an extraordinary writer, especially of fiction, but also about jazz and blues. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a little thing about him and his importance for me. And the way I'm always trying and argue, I'm always arguing with him because he was just an absolute genius. And I disagreed with him on so much stuff. Oh, wow. And I feel like it feels like this, like intensely emotional relationship with this writer who I never met. So I was invited to give this little talk on him and the editor of Harper's at the time was there. And he said, would you want to write anything? And I said, my first thought is I, I want to write about why Gordon Parks kept beginning his many autobiographies with Alabama. Why is he he's a man from Kansas, but he kept starting his story with Alabama. So yeah. that's what I, I wanted to write about his photographs in Alabama. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite like, it wasn't like a story. And then I was like, I want to write a story just about Alabama. And he's like, okay. And it was the first time a magazine editor had given me like a contract to just go write something hmm. and a budget and said, and it felt like, you know, I don't know, like manna from heaven. It was just like one of those moments I was like, I can tell the thing that is always on my heart that I always feel is misunderstood and have felt is misunderstood my whole life. Yeah. Right. And that was the opening to this book. And I don't know quite how to describe it beyond saying that it is very hard to be a place where you feel as though your story cannot actually be contemplated. Like people can't, they don't have a capacity to get the place that made you you all the time. But that seemed to me then to be a metaphor for this nation (laughs) and its relationship to the South, right? Like, so this, Because the South is like where it all began, whether you talk about the beginning in 1619 or 1520 or, you know, whether you start Florida or or wherever you start, (laughs) which places or D.C., um, it starts in the South, right? Like we have all these different start dates and it's and the South has always led the direction of the nation. And yet it gets depicted as backwards behind slow right it's all of the industry all of the um and so like this it's just a strange thing but you understand when you realize oh it's because the country tries to expunge its underside it tries to like pretend like all this stuff happened without slavery all this stuff happened without Jim Crow all this stuff happened without people being worked to death all this right that's why 
But then it's like, then the South becomes the repository for the national sins when the whole country has depended upon the region. Absolutely. Right. And as part of the way it sort of pushes, you know, there's this sort of pushing of the South to the side, even though the like dominant narrative is like, oh, the racism there is so terrible. It's also about a disdain for black people and black folk ways. Right. Sure. So it's a complicated rejection. So I was like, this is so once people once I got the go ahead that I could like transition from a more traditional, I mean, I was never a traditional academic, but where I got to the point in my writing life where I could write more creatively and people would support it and pay me to do it. This is definitely what I was going to do. Wow. Yeah. And it, it definitely sounds like a natural uh, progression. Um, and everything you said really is so true. And I, I think people often forget about that. You know, it's, I mean, everybody had to come through the South, which is interesting because, I mean, it's kind of out of the way if you think about it, but everyone literally had to come through the South to enter this country and to it grew, you know, from this, you know, this direction. And I'm so glad that we have people who are pushing, not necessarily pushing this narrative, but who are bringing this forward and actually reminding people, hey, you know, the South is definitely more than what your imagination has been made to, to believe it to be. Um, and that's honestly what High Ground Society is about. Specifically, we focus on, you know, the state of Alabama, because God bless the state of Alabama, <laughs> um, trying to shake that, that, um, that reputation. But that's really it. Like, we have so much. We're so rich in so many different things other than this, you know, narrative narrative that we're forced to, 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 to sit with. And so um, if it means anything, I think you accomplished <laughs> what you set out to do in this book. Um, and so, yeah, it's been great. It's been great to, to have this out into the world. I want to also, as part of your introduction, kind of adding it on to it, I, I want to let people know that I came to know you and your work through your book from one book ago, one, two books ago, Looking for the Rain. Yeah, the book before, the book before last. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. And I was late to the draft. I felt so lame. I was so late to this book <laughs> because it came out and I think I was actually in grad school whenever it was going on. So I really wasn't reading anything that wasn't, you know, nonprofit, you know, medicine and stuff. But when I finally sat down to read that book, I was absolutely in love with it. You introduced me to uh, Miss Hansberry and we are best friends along with uh, James Baldwin. And also like we're all three of us are in my head. We're best friends. <laughs> you don't need to be at that party. No, I mean, it just... She, I thank you for saying that because for me, part of the point of writing about her and I, you know, was an unconventional form of biography, which not everybody was ready for or excited about, but I'm always thinking about the uses of the past, right? Mm -hmm. And she's here for us to learn through her and with her and use her as a model and be inspired by her. And so I wanted to open up the space for that kind of relationship as a right, like the connection to them, right. She gets into your spirit, like in a way that is um, like Baldwin and the way that they, and even their relationship being so tender and him turning to her, like when he wanted somebody to read his work, mm -hmm. For me, it unfreezes some of the iconography, right? Like he's iconic, of course, and a genius, of course, but he was also a vulnerable human being. Yep. Like, like, oh, I'm nervous about putting this out, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think it's important for us to see that, 
you know? Yeah. But that's why, I, again, that's why I loved it so much because again, I already do this thing where I like try to be friends with people in my head. <laughs> so, but this, this book did an incredible job of doing that. And it, it taught me a ton of things. Um, but I had, I had just begun my love affair, if you will, with James Baldwin, his work. So it was like this natural, beautiful progression. And I, it was so crazy. I read Looking for Lorraine, and then I think a few months later, I was in Minneapolis visiting a friend, and it was the Pillsbury Theater. We just happened to be driving by to go to lunch, and this theater was doing this play about Lorraine Hansberry and James Baldwin's friendship. And I was like, I I literally screamed. My friend thought I was nuts. I said, we have to go to this play. It was nowhere on our schedule to do this. I said, can I, can we please do this? She said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And it was just such a great full circle moment. And it just continues to happen. So, I mean, I do feel, you know, I, I believe in esoteric things, right. Mm -hmm. And moments that are like where you're just called to experience certain things. So even with, with Hansberry, her mother was a Perry. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to from Tennessee, but from the, from, you know, the part of Tennessee that is close to North Alabama. So I spent a long time trying to figure out if we were related. We're not. (laughs) (laughs) But even just that sense of like, you know, needing to build the connection with, with her through the past. And of course, with Baldwin, the way that he talked about the South as a homeland Mm -hmm. and went South to find himself. Mm -hmm. That's really important for this. Yeah. For sure. So I wanted to make sure I I, I pointed that out because that was a special moment for me uh, with looking for Lorraine. And then also this book too, because it's, it's very timely. I'm sure you're going to hear this a lot (laughs) as people are talking to you about the book. But it just is. So, I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to see how you felt about it. I mean, how does it feel to have this particular book out into the world in this moment that we're living in? Um, it feels, well, I will say this. I think that because of what I think the South is and does that is very true, but also submerged, it's always time to talk about it, right? <laughs> like it's. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, so for me, when I'm like, I was working on this book and I'm like, okay, the politics around the oil in the Middle East, South, the politics around Central America, South, the politics around, you know, the political economy, South, the like it's all. And so Wall Street, the origins of Wall Street as a way of organizing our society rooted in itself. And so for me, it was like, um, how to do show that and also account for all of the sort of the domestic history of white supremacy and violence and race, right? And that that's, so um, it feels timely and timeless. It feels um, like I have done something I was called to do. It feels amazing to have it resonate with people. Mm -hmm. It feels strange in this respect in that I get emails all the time, (laughs) um, but mostly from white people from Northern places that are the angry emails. Really? What? Yeah. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is as, you know, I think on the one hand, the politics of course are disrupt are disturbing to many white Southerners, but this, the, destabilization of the narrative that the rest of the nation has about the South is also upsetting. Sure. Right? 
like, I, I'm, you know, I'm from the Northwest and my family built this country. And I'm like, okay. Or they're like, <laughs> and some of it is, is so, it's like, it's almost written. I mean, and I'm an associative writer, but it's deliberate, but some of it is like free association mm-hmm. and experience of being destabilized by another story. And these are not, and so I'm just one, what it's sort of, you know, it's hit dogs holler. Like it's, it because it's not just someone saying, oh, this book is stupid. I'm going to throw it aside. It's people are upset, mm-hmm. right? Because it's triggering something. That feels weird, but it also feels right. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. And so, I mean, I, I actually, so this is kind of a side question. It's not scripted, but I, I it's in, it's in my, my, in, in front of my head right now. So we're in this moment where there's like a lot of book banning and mm-hmm. stuff going on. Like, how do you, I mean, do you, how do you think, do you feel like this little like South America <laughs> might end up on somebody's list or? Everything that I've ever written, if anybody thinks that it's, if it ever comes to anybody's attention, it'll, der- I mean, definitely be banned. I mean, like all the ways, you know, I talk, I, I got a book that's a critique of patriarchy. I have lots of books that talk about queerness, that talk about white supremacy. That I, I mean, it's just like every single thing that is making people upset is something I've devoted my life to. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, but, you know, I also think in this moment, it's just a wonderful time to remember our yeah. truth of refusing to be shut out from reading as a relation of knowledge and expansion, right? That That is what black southerners have done since the beginning right and whether whether it's steal away meetings to learn how to read even you though you could be killed for it during slavery to developing these alternative um you know newspapers and book publishing company i mean you know carter g woodson west virginian right like there's a you know all of it comes out of our tradition so we have to dig deep and pull that those resources back up appropriate to today, right? There's different issues, but to con- not, regardless, whatever the institutions may ban, what are we going to read? What are we going to share with our community? What are we going to talk about, right? To not let, let our knowledge be limited. And that seems to me to be, I do, I'm always worried about whether we neglect the best parts of our tradition. So that's, I mean, I think that's the, the, that stuff is horrific, but I also, we know how to, to not be shut off by that. For sure, yeah. I spend a lot of time on, on Twitter, which I see in the Twitter sphere as well. So and there's always this talk about losing the recipes, you know. <laughs> and, and so this is something that uh, I'm glad that you mentioned. It's a reminder that that's something that we need to re- rededicate ourselves to and always have that in the forefront of our mind. Like, that's something that we need to... It's a form of resistance, which is so ridiculous, right? Like, you know, we're just trying to live and like rebel in our in our identities and our history, but so that makes some people upset. And so we have to politicize it. So I don't want to go too far down that road, but I'm glad I just, I'm glad that you were you offered some insight into that. Cause I've always wondered, like, you know, these authors out here doing this work, it's labors of love and just labor, period. Um, and to have it kind of be thrust back in your face like that, I've always felt, you know. I've empathized with that experience. So, yeah. And it, 
different ways. Like I've been, I read, I, I put this book up cause I'm tired of looking at my own book on my shelf, like, <laughs> but I put this book up. It's and cause it's this radio. I'll explain to it. Um, it's Jack Whitten's note from notes from the woodshed. And he was a, a Bessemer um, born visual artist who just incredible who who did sort of he did he was a master of abstraction but he would use acrylic paint layering it and make tiles and of the paint and then layer and make portraits out of tiles of paint this is beautiful mixture of colors and anyway I love his book both because he talks about the process but he talks about not being able to sell paintings and not making any money and applying for fellowships over and over and over again and getting rejected and I read it because it's this, it's this way of being reminded that not being recognized, being pushed aside, not being acknowledged for your gifts is commonplace. It's more common than the opposite mm. of, for Black folks in particular. And, but he kept making art. And had he when those doors were shut in his face, not made art, his incredible work wouldn't be here for us to learn from and grow through. And so it's, so I think it's not exactly the same, but I think also for writers who are experiencing rejection or being excluded from, um, and I will, and you know, that there's something to learn from all of the incredible masters of their craft who just to stay devoted to the craft right and it's not I'm not saying it's easy but it it does matter it matters it matters it matters right absolutely absolutely thank you so much uh, <laughs> for that like and I hope if anyone's listening I hope you know that's a, a symbol or a, a signal for you to to keep going and to realize that it, it might not even get easier anytime soon it's just a part of part and parcel of what what this what this is so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I want to, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of dive into one of the parts of, I mean, it's a kind of a continuation of what we're talking about. But earlier on in South to America, you, let me tell you, first of all, <laughs> I think I did the same thing with looking for Lorraine, but I have so many notes <laughs> in this book and so many dog ears and underlines. Um, because also, I just love the way that you write. It's very familiar, and it's not, like, overly academic, if you will. It's just, it's, it's, it's a great journey. I'm excited for people to get into it. Um, but early on in the book, you, you said this quote. It's, you said, um, although I know the cultural power of myth, I believe honesty is far more useful if you want to do more than justify a nation. If you want to understand a nation or have aspirations for it, it, for it that are decent, myth ought to be resisted. So again, I don't, this is going to be the only little shred that we talk about in the book in depth because I want people to actually go out and, and get into it. But if you will, what myth in this are, are you talking about in, in this one, if you don't mind? Well, I mean, I, I think the core myth of the nation, which is sustained, whether it's the lost cause folks or the ever more perfect union folks, mm -hmm. This idea that this nation is founded on principles of liberty and justice for all and democracy. It's just, it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the way that, you know, it is founded on exclusion and exploitation mm -hmm. and pulling people out and grinding down people's lives. And 
and and and only allowing the political community to be a small fraction of everybody who is laboring for this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those platitudes, all nations do this. It's not unique to the United States. All nations use mythology. We have this interesting dynamic where we have evidence of the lie of the mythology everywhere you look, right? right? This country everywhere. And it sounds beautiful, but it there's something about the way that it operates that it allows us to justify so much cruelty and pretend that we're like so for me, when I hear when I hear talk about gentrification, there's a direct line from Indian removal to gentrification. When I, you know, when we talk about what mass incarceration, of course, you know, people talk about this more now, but direct line from the plantation to the prison, literally in many places in the South, because the prisons are on plantations. Right. Uh, or, you know, when you, when people step over folks who are unhoused on the street, mm-hmm. right. So, or, you know, with children being stolen from their parents on the board. I mean, we're, and then I remember thinking like when there is a political discussion about the kids who were taken from their parents who were undocumented. Um, and I remember thinking like, okay, now everybody knows, isn't this fascinating how people can just move every morning as though this isn't happening? Well, that, right. that's what we've learned to do. Right. We have. And so there's the, that dishonesty that is we are socialized into is so deadly. Mm-hmm. And I just think that we have to be honest. And even if people, you know, I'm not I don't call myself a patriot because I love my country because it's mine. But I don't consider, consider myself a patriot because I don't I think there's a moral, morally questionable stance to think that any person is better because of where they happen to be born or whether they're recognized by law. But if we want to hold on to these principles, then you have to, you have to start telling the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and whenever you said that, I don't know if this, this quote inspired that, but it made a direct connection again to my friend, Jimmy, who, you know, says, if I love you, I have to be honest with you as that's paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly, but like, it's again, making these connections and just coming full circle. It, it's a reaffirming, you know, affirmation for me. Like, it's just, that's just the way it is. I have to be honest with, you know, uh, I, I can't, especially just, I can't walk through these things. Um, as you're talking about it, it kind of reminds me too, I don't know how big of a sci-fi person you are, but like the Matrix, like the America, America is the Matrix in a way. <laughs> Absolutely. Like we have to work to disconnect ourselves from these things that we told me there are, and I really appreciate you saying that about patriotism too, because I've thought about that as well. Like, there are aspects of my country. And I think of my own father who I've said out loud, like, oh, I just need to get up and leave the country. And I like, I'll take you with me too, dad. And he's like, no, why would I leave? You know, this is, this is my home. You know, I have to remember that and be like, yeah, this is, that's true. Like I, this is my home as well. And so there are parts of the country or, or our history that I do buy into, or I do appreciate, but there are some parts I'm definitely at this point as I'm coming of age, just like vigorously trying to reconcile and disconnect from. So how might we go about doing that, resisting this myth in a way that doesn't like keep us in a straitjacket? 
me, I think it's being a student of history. I mean, you know, history is like, history is so much of a choice. um, And we don't talk about it that way because it's like, I I always make the analogy. It's like map making, right? Mm. So make a map and that the Edward P. Jones um, novel, The Known World is really makes this point beautifully, right? So there's this map, this official map, and then there's this um, formerly enslaved woman who creates an alternative map. And then the alternative map has like people on it and like houses, like the the markers on the map are different, right? Mm -hmm. Every time you make a map, you make a, you you can't put everything on the map because if you did, the map would be unusable. They call that Bonini's paradox. So when you make a map, you make decisions about what matters. Right. And like, you know, that's and it and it has you're making decisions about what you want people to be able to how how you want people to be able to get from A to B, what you want people to attend to. History is very similar. There are billions and billions of details. You make a decision about what to attend to. Right. And I think so for me, I want to pay attention to the story from the ones who, who did the work, right? That's one, right? Who did the work, right? Who did the caring? Who, um, who tended to the land, right? Who, so to me, that's sort of the, how we get out of it is, is a matter of attention. I think we curate our existences in this world, right? Like you make it, like when you make a decision about what you're going to listen to, what you're going to look at on TV, all of those are ethical choices. And I'm, Listen, I don't make all ethical choices, certainly not when I listen to them, but <laughs> for a reason, right? Because some of it is about the release of frustration or rage or like whatever emotions, but I want to be deliberate about it. I think the same is true of, about our relationship to, to the past, right? Um, that's yeah. how you, and then you talk about it, right? You're in community, like knowledge is not a private possession. It's a collective you know, building. That's beautiful. Thank you. So uh, a lot of this, you're speaking to me. Well, we're speaking to the people who are listening as well, but uh, especially a lot of the questions that I ask are very much so Gerald's. <laughs> so a little selfishness, um, but I really, that's, it's, I think a lot of people would stand to, to reorient themselves in that way. I feel the same way about history. That's one of the reasons I studied history is like, I like to know, obviously you have these big, names and big figures and big events and everything and that's great but to know what these people were doing um like the everyday people like that's where i find the fascinating things happening and if i think if we did that we could connect we can find inspiration in them as much as we do eisenhower rosa parks you know all these other big things that those are those are our heroes as well so yeah can i say a little thing about um about history because you just mentioned rosa parks sure yeah so it's been really interesting to me over the last couple of years, like this sort of, cause it's a sort of, it's an Alabama history that has become more public, but that is for me still partial in a way that is, I think is, is not troubling, but that we need to push further. Right. So first there's the mythology of Rosa Parks. People didn't acknowledge that she was an organizer. She had this long history of working um, with the NAACP and around sexual violence in particular. And so that, mm-hmm tell that fuller story and then people talked about Claudette Colvin who had Colvin who had done you know who'd had a protest earlier and that you know colorism and respectability politics are part of why she was not acknowledged as 
um, someone who had had a similar sort of approach and not chosen to be the figure who around whom the Montgomery bus boycott would be organized. And then there was a revival of a discussion of the women in general who organized the Montgomery mm-hmm. bus. Here's my thing is what is that in Birmingham, people were protesting on the bus all the time. Mm. 20s, 30s, right? Getting off the front of the bus. My mother has stories, um, you know, in the in the 50s. And so the politics, even within the state of Alabama, varied based upon rel- how relatively urban or rural, right? And so like there's these correctives that happen and then people push them back into a new official story. But the reality is that even that sort of fa- often fails to understand the com- really the complexity of the landscape according to race, right? Sure. Like, and so I'm always like, you know, we always needed like a little asterisk in the stories that we tell because mm-hmm. they're, there's a lot, there's always more that we don't know than what we, than what we know. And it just, so it's, so for me, I'm always like, cause when I tell people, oh, you know, they, you know, in the thirties in Birmingham, the bus and Robin Kelly wrote an article about this was like a, a public theater of resistance to, to segregation. And people will disbelieve me. You know? <laughs> like, oh, black people resisted all the time. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Robin Kelly, too, because he has uncovered a massive book for me. I mean, I haven't read the book yet, but it's a book about the socialist movement or communist music movement in Alabama. Again, just like you said, people don't believe you. (laughs) People would be just, you know, floored. So, yeah, thank you for urging us to continue to discover and go be, oh, my gosh, just thinking about the way we're taught history in in school. (laughs) very compartmentalized and it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface but you're right um we do need to be vigilant in the way that we engage these stories and these narratives for sure i hated history as a subject until i got to graduate school until i was history of american civilization i hated the field yeah i had a similar experience i was actually studying to be a history teacher i was just telling my friend about my colleague about this like and Based on what I how I saw them treating teachers and how I saw, you know, the 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 experience of the students themselves, I mean, I saw it as for me, like the onus was to get them excited about learning history, and I was like, I had that passion, but the same debt combined with other things, I was like, this is just too much, <laughs> so I had to fall back. I've been so um, fortunate to still be in the realm of the, of history and still be able to work in the various. Uh, ways outside of the classroom and having like having conversations like this is exactly where I think again kind of uh, fortuitous if you will like this is great and I hope people begin to talk like we do about history and then and and ask these questions and that sort of thing this has been incredible so far (laughs) thank you Um, so this is kind of a, a little bit of a pivot but based on what we've talked about so far and what we know about the South, what would you say to a young Black Alabamian, i.e. me? <laughs> but I'm expanding because this is a conversation that comes up all the time. Um, we talk about a lot about like the brain drain and things like people leaving Alabama and stuff like that, or the South in general. So what would you say to someone who wants to leave Alabama um, kind of in the same way that people like left, you know, the great migrant, like during the great migration, like. Um, I mean, I think people should go where they feel themselves called to go. 
Mm. I really do. I, I, but I also think that it's very important not to believe <laughs> this, this, the fiction that things that are problems in Alabama don't exist elsewhere. Right. That's important. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's the, but you know, there are places I, I there, okay, so there's this line in um, Fred Wesley's memoir. He was James Brown's side man. And he tells a story about how the rest of the band is from Georgia. And they, like, they were wearing all these crazy costumes. And he's like, I'm not wearing that. I'm <laughs> Alabama conservative, right? <laughs> and there is, I think, specifically... Um, and I use, it's interesting because I, I was, someone asked me the other day, why do you use Alabama instead of Alabamian? And I was like, where did I start doing this? I had to like dig through my notes of the book. And it was actually, I said, I'm going to do this. And there's actually paragraphs about this, but I was going to do that. It was actually a reference point to the indigenous folks that I was like trying to echo. But anyway, so there is something that is part of the state culture. I think that is, more conservative than other parts of this. And I don't mean politically, I mean, it is more political, but I mean, in terms of presentation and style. Mm-hmm. And so some of what, when people want to venture out, part of it is, you know, often breaking free of some of those social codes, which I think, you know, I get. I also think it's so important for folks to continue to make space for letting one's freak flag fly in Alabama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's there, it is such a rich place creatively, artistically. I mean, you know, and you you look at the array, just the visual. I've never seen somebody, I, I, I've talked about with a friend about doing a book about this, but just the visual art tradition is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But you don't have a, you know, you don't hear people talking about the visual art tradition of Black Alabama, for example. It's incredible. There's so much imagination, musical tradition, everything that he came out of Detroit as a direct debt to I mean, it's just all this. And so I, I feel like being very, um, to the extent that we can be affirmative about how expansive Alabamas are. Like so much so, like I, I talk, because I live in Philly and people... Like there are people who will argue with me that Sun Ra is from Philly. <laughs> right? No, no. <laughs> lived in Philly, right? But it's almost like us people can't imagine that that imagination come. But, and when he, he did dress a little differently when he was at home, right? He was a lot of things. But the whole imagination that he created, the magic city, right, is where it comes out of. So, that's the sort of long-winded answer, but... Sure. No, and I'm so glad that you brought that up about Sunrise, because this is actually one of the questions that did not make the cut, but I'm actually going to put it back in, because we, in your book, you talk... Well, you taught you, you learned me something. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned... So Alabama has all these connections to these incredible people, and we already... You know, we know some people off the top of the head. Yes, it's Sun Ra. Um, you talked about... Uh, well, I was reminded about Odetta, who's also from Birmingham. Um, of course, Coretta Scott King, and then I re- during the early parts of the pandemic, during the Clark Sisters um, biopic that came out, I learned after doing some research after that that there, Dr. Maddie Moss Clark 
from Selma. I forget, excuse me. And then here you come talking about Michelle Obama's connection. Yep. So it's her grandfather, yeah? Yeah. And And Stevie Wonder's mama. I mean, there's just so, so, yeah. It's this incredible tradition of people who are just coming out of the state and, you know, don't necessarily cut their ties with it either. Like they come back and, and so, so you were talking about, um, uh, Lorraine Hansberry's mom and the Perry, <laughs> the Perry name. But, you know, the part of Tennessee that's close to North Alabama. Yeah. Which is, you know, close enough, right? Well, I do the same thing. So I think I remember seeing something with Michael Jackson and his family being linked yeah. to Alabama. And so my grandmother's name is, I'm a Jackson as well. And so I was definitely trying to make <laughs> connection. Yes. No, I mean, and there's, so, and there's also this moment with, um, you know, it's at the in, in Montgomery when they had the festival, the Albion Festival of the Book, where there was um, Bob Zellner who was telling a story about them filming a movie of his life at Tuskegee because he was prohibited from doing it at his own alma mater, and he, he's ta- telling the story and he's like, "Oh, and you know, Spike Lee is from Alabama." And Spike Lee's the guy who worked with Spike Lee, Barry, I can't think of his last name, but he was like, no, he's not. He's a white man from Alabama. And then all these elderly white people in the crowd were like, his people are from Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) And it just these moments, like, you know, there's, and it's, you know, there is a tradition there that gets disregarded because of the image of the state that I think it is very important to expose um, because it's, you know, I love Mississippi and Mississippians, but it's not Mississippi (laughs) as, you know, it has that deep font, you know. For sure. For sure. And also side note, I really love your, your, um, your feud with Dr. Gloud and other Mississippians. (laughs) That's very entertaining. Oh my goodness, they never leave me alone. Oh my goodness. So yeah, I guess continuing in this and then thinking about the coming from uh, Alabama and and again in South America, this is Women's History Month. March is Women's History Month for those who who don't know. If you haven't figured it out by now, but listen to the podcast, I love my theme months. And so March is always (laughs) going to be looking to our mothers and our sisters and grandmothers and aunties. Um, But that's one of the things that you do in the book is like throughout, there's this thread. This is, I picked this up obviously while I was reading, but you talked about this with uh, Dr. Cloud in your talk a few weeks ago. Um, And I wanted to see like who, so specifically, who are some of the women that you admire that aren't necessarily mentioned in the book? Oh, so the, I would say the biggest person, I mean, I, I mentioned it briefly as part of my Mississippi feud moment, but Margaret Walker, who is, who was born in Birmingham and who um, lived in Chicago and of course spent much of her adult life in Jackson um, as a professor at Jackson state, but was a, you know, was a novelist, a writer, a poet, and wrote for me what for to me is the most important poem in the history of Black letters for my people. And mm-hmm. just, it's an epic poem, but it's an epic poem that, you know, it tells history and also sensibility, like in 
you know, the sounds and the textures and color of black life. And so to me that that attentiveness to our people at the center, right, is Mm -hmm. of the center of her work. I think that's a direct inspiration. Of course, also, um, and I wrote about her more in um, a book that I wrote on the history of Lift Every Voice and Sing, but Augusta Savage, who, Mm. you know, from Green Green Cove, Florida, who um, was an incredible sculptor, but also educator, right? Like who opened up a sort of a body of art creating to so many black young black artists, you know, and as a, and so there's these, these women, I'm really interested in two things. One is part of what I do in the book is, you know, I'm, I, I'll say it this way. I don't, I'm not into gender wars. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not into wars, I'm not into diaspora wars. I'm not into like, I don't, but what I am interested in thinking, well, what happens? And in this book, if I tell the story from the perspective of this ancestor who was a woman working on a plantation, if I you talk about a, the field hand and imagine the field hand as woman, right? That person in the, that position, which was so integral to the history of this nation, right? The person who did both reproductive labor and physical labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of what I'm trying to do. And I, I'm interested in women who tried to make space for others. They were creative and imaginative, but it was never a selfish endeavor. Mm-hmm. Something really, so when we tell you know, and we are good about acknowledging our mothers and grandmothers in our tradition and how precious they are. Um, I think we we need to work more on talking about how imagine, not just how hardworking and long suffering, but how imaginative they had to be to create possibilities for us, right? The sort of like the intellectual imagination piece. So I, I like to look for those um, models and examples as we, you know, in the tradition. Um, you know, cause it's, it's, it, it, there's a, it is true that, you know, the mothers and grandmothers are long suffering and give, but they're also, they were so brilliant, Absolutely. right? So the way that we can like see them just as the suffering and giving and not what they gave, mm-hmm. you know, um, fully. Yeah. For sure. And in some ways you can even think of that suffering as science, just thinking about the way that they made the ways out of no way, you know, if I, if I could get... <laughs> <laughs> that's why I tell a story about being in this at this you know house that that in historic house in Maryland where the person where there was a, a cook that the docent talked about who had made you know made all these elaborate meals but she didn't she wasn't literate so none of it could be written down and I was you know just thinking about the science that was held in that woman's head it's just overwhelming you know, like now, even for me now, like if I don't, I, I was taught to cook by feel, feel by my Madea, but if I'm trying to make an elaborate cake, I need a recipe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. Everything. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I'm, I'm so glad you said that. I'm actually in, um, in Thomasville, Georgia at the moment at a conference. And we were talking about, we did this virtual tour of a house in Savannah. And it specifically talked about, um, enslaved woman there by the name of Diane, who was the cook. And they talked about how 
same situation. These elaborate meals, they're entertaining these dignitaries that everything had to involve um, maintaining the temperatures of food without all the gadgets. I'm like, come on. Like, <laughs> like. It's incredible. Yes. It's like they were literally the science instruments themselves, the science hands. Like, I can stand so, <laughs> so much. It's, it's mind blowing. And, um, and I like that you said that all these things they did to pave the way, because like, look at us now, we're finally about to hopefully get a Supreme Court justice. Someone who's going to recognize, you know, a, a Black woman uh, has the wisdom, more than enough wisdom to be, to serve in that capacity for our country. So um, I, I want to thank you for, you know, helping to bring that to the forefront of my mind as a, a man. I can get caught up in my patriarchy. And, you know, <laughs> you know, and so... Um, it's important to have that reminder and to be thinking about things. Now I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking for those narratives, every, every the historical space I'm going to, and I'm thinking about these things differently. So, um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, this, uh, South to America and, you know, the other, other things I've read from you as well. So yeah, is there anything else you want to say about that? Well, I would also say to me, a companion to that, and this is more, um, you know, I wrote a book that was about gender theory, vexy thing, and it was, but one of the, the other pieces of that is, and part of the, one of the people who helped me think about this was Bob Moses, who was the architect of Mississippi Freedom Summer and, um, and a lead organizer in SNCC. And, you know, I grew up knowing him. I was devastated at his path, about his passing, but he was so non-patriarchal. And I always think he was so, his work was so essential. And it's also important to attend to men who were extraordinary and did so much who don't fit into the packages of patriarchy, right? He was, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he's intensely intellectual, but, you know, sweet, gentle, quiet, right? He used to take, when I was a kid, he would like, you know, he would just take us all to the pool every weekend. Like we just jumped in, you know, he was, he was a tender person, right? And even in adulthood, if we were at conferences together, he would be like, tell him who you are, tell like he would push, nudge me the way I generally, it's a way that I more often experience women do. Uh, auntie, yeah. <laughs> I want to tell him what, you know, that kind of thing. And so I also think as part of that, we need to expand the, the realm, the zone for what the meaningful work that men do. For sure. Well, I can't wait for that book. <laughs> I'll be on the lookout for that, you know, the part two to Vexy Things. Um, you know, Vexy Things Revisited, you know. <laughs> you know, I might, I might have to do it. Yeah. I would love that. That would be incredible. Um, so, again, this is, I love how this is flowing so naturally because we're talking about, you know, your experiences with these, these the ancestors and, and the elders of our community. Um. This is something that I'm also just observing and just wanted to, to kind of see what you were thinking about it. But like culturally, we, we've learned this respect for our elders and our ancestors. But then we also have evidence or just, you know, firsthand accounts of people like, say, during the civil rights movement who were younger in the movement kind of coming into conflict with the older people. And so you can kind of, I hate to say it was like SNCC versus SCLC, but in certain places it was essentially <laughs> that. <laughs> um, and so... I think sometimes, you know, there's like this impatience from the younger side with the, the, the older side of things. So, and I think we're kind of seeing the same thing, same things today. So what solutions kind of, cause you, you wrestled with this and you experienced this, well, you didn't experience this exact thing, but you engage in this kind of work um, in your book and South America. 
So what solutions, if any, might you have for us to kind of move together, you know, capitalize on both of our, our strengths as young folks and older folks? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is... Okay, so I think one of the things I do know, and this is mostly, you know, from watching my mother, both my parents, but especially my mother. And my mother was a person who really had so much respect for elders, even if she didn't agree with their politics completely. And I learned a lot from that Um, because there is something inevitable about conflict, right? Like it has to happen because these are very difficult problems. One, Mm. it has to happen because we are not monolithic. We are going to have different ideas of what the better, not just what the just society would look like, but the best way to get there, right? It just, we're human beings. <laughs> so of course, right? We're not an army. We're people trying to get free. So those things, so it's, it's inevitable that there's going to be conflict. But I do think, you know, that moment, for example, when um, when Stokely, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture and, and King are walking alongside each other as they're completing the march against fear, um, walking through Miss, through Mississippi, and they clearly are at odds, but they're walking and talking with a kind of tenderness. Like that's the disposition, right? Like, so I, this is why I really, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up about on some of the stuff on social media, because my point, you know, it's not that people shouldn't object, but it's like, oh, why do I have to be so nasty? Right. Diminishing, like, because I don't agree with you on this, this, and this, you're nothing, right? Like that, (laughs) right? You, that's not a good and also because of the way that the cycle works, everybody's going to wind up having a turn being rejected, right? And it and the public nature of it is not, it doesn't become, con, it's not a conflict, it's because it's not a real public sphere, it's a stomping. Mm. Um, just because of the way that it's structured as a corporate platform. It's not, so it's not the, actually the individuals, but the platform doesn't yield to real serious political engagement at all, right? Because you post something and then even if you have had a transformation over the next couple of hours, people are still responding to the first post, right? So it's not it. And that becomes an artifact, a thing that is representative of that person. There's not a conversation, mm-hmm. right? Unless people delete things, but then it's like, oh, you deleted. So you're doing something like insidious or wrong. So, so, the, so it's really structurally a problem, but I do think some kind of tenderness, even in passionate disagreement with people on the other. And my friend, Simone White, actually taught me this years ago because she was, I was railing about somebody. <laughs> I, still, I still, like, he says stuff and I'll be like, oh, like, that's just wrong. And she said, like, he just drives, it just so bugs me so much. And she was like, Imani, at the end of the day, we are on the same side. Mm. And I was like, I know, but I don't like how it <laughs> describes our side. <laughs> important to have that moment of clarity for yeah. me. Yeah. And I think we see, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that. Cause I, I'm also reminded of, of moments where I might've come across things. Um, so I, I got my friend to read James Baldwin's Fire Next Time. And we were talking about his exchange with, um, Elijah Muhammad. Yeah, yeah. That experience, that's kind of what that reminds me of how they, they like 
which is really a lot because you have the nation of Islam and you have this queer black man in the 1950s, like <laughs> trying to, you know, do this work. And, but I, I think, Oh my gosh, I'm having a moment right now. Cause I feel the spirit of Jimmy. Uh, like, <laughs> like that's him. And there's something about, I mean, this is why for me to locate Elijah Muhammad, you know, in Sandersville, Georgia, having witnessed all those lynchings before he was an adult, to to re-situate him with the vulnerability, right, that is underneath the rage is really important, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's another, they were both so vulnerable. And Jimmy was like, I'm not giving up my vulnerability. Oof. Right. That's the choice that he made. But he could see, but he could see, you know, Elijah Muhammad and that and Hansberry too. And they were like, we're not gonna reject him. Like we disagree, but we can see what he's saying, right? Where it comes from. And I think that is so was so profound. Radical. <laughs> Everybody was telling them, don't you, reject, don't you, don't you think, don't you think, like, I don't agree, but no, I'm not tearing him. And you, there are very few public figures today who, if they're asked, Black people, will you reject the nation won't say, yes, I reject them, right? That as a way of controlling Black politics is much more effective now than it was for that generation. Absolutely. Ooh, again, so many threads I can unravel with that. But that was that, I, I did not tend to go there, but that was incredible. Um, so that's something that you know. Try, uh, I'm, what's uh, Al Green? Try a little tenderness, you know. Remember love, all these things, folks. Y'all remember that? Like that's what we got to continue to tap into, especially because we have. I think you know it's going to be a little challenging continuing to get down the road that we have uh, ahead of us. Um, so again, trying to wrap it up here, because uh, again, uh, I can ha- keep you here all day. I know you have things to do, <laughs> but uh, as we're kind of wrapping things up, what do you want people to take from South to America? Oh, that's such a good question. I just want people to feel invited to contemplate history differently and to maybe think of their their location in history differently and then be kind of inspired to dig around some more, right? Like I was very deliberate about, I'm not going to these 10 locations and then telling you how to interpret them. I mean, like I'm kind of wandering through the landscape. Each place is representative of a theme, but there's a kind of cross fertilization of them. And I want, I want something to be kind of released by looking outside of the official story. I mm. guess that that's the main thing. Um, and I want, you know, like, and, and for there to be, you know, it's a book with more questions than answers quite deliberately. So it's more of a kind of relation. I wanted to open up new kinds of relationships, right. Um, and to have a life for readers that is not, a one-time read. So I'm hoping that people will have the experience of returning to it in five or 10 years and thinking, I hated that section. And now I think it's really interesting, or I love that. And now I think she's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those, it, cause I, it's about, it's about a shifting narration, but also a shifting relationship. So that's, 
that's what I want people to take from it. I, you know, I have, it's funny. I haven't, I didn't talk that much about how much Morrison influences me in the book, but I was, I don't know, I was having a conversation a couple of days ago about how the first three times I read, I started reading Toni Morrison Young. And then when I got to Beloved 1987, so I was 14, 14 15, I had no idea what was happening in that book. Like I was like, I, I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> read it again. And I was like, yeah, I still don't know what's happening here. Like I just had no idea what was going on. And it was the third time I was like, oh, this is what this is. And then it became my favorite book. And I say, you know, and it could, that was because she was, she was, she wrote on so many levels at once in that book. It was not an easy thing to read, but now every time I read it, it gives me something new. And I, that's part of my aspiration as a writer that, that it can be returned. There's a lot of playing with every sentence is, is, is as uh, Eddie Glaude said, every sentence is universe unto itself, but it's also that there are layered meanings in lots of the sentences because it's a complicated terrain and story and history, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I guess it's like wanting to be able to have a book that can be a relationship like that. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can. <laughs> I never said. I think <laughs> here I get that. I got that. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, take that, folks. You don't like it, like it's not an assignment. But by all means, if you whenever you do read the book, I hope that you do take that away. I, so hearing you say that, I'm like, okay, yeah, I did. I got it. Because <laughs> it's true. Um, and then there are so many connections. So you talked about, you know beloved which yeah is a is a wild book right it's incredible very profound but then you mentioned that and i don't even know if you did this on purpose but you talked about the eji center in the book and how tony morrison is there you know and that's like that quote is it's church to me to be completely honest it's it's, it's biblical for me and um so yeah i think people will i think they'll get you yeah, because that's, oh, I'd love that you noticed that. Because it's, because, right, because one, uh, Garner, right? And Margaret Garner is the woman whose actual story was, you know, the foundation for Beloved. So that, there is a very explicit Beloved. But I start with the, with the Puritan sermon, right? Jonathan Edwards, right? Errand in the Wilderness. And then there's Baby Suggs once we get to Montgomery. And then the end is, an, is a Jeremiah type sermon, like the voice change shifts at the end of the book where it's like, I'm trying to channel baby Suggs, but also a revision of the idea that like the rapidity, there's a decline coming that we have to arrest, but not the Puritans, right. Who were trying to dominate, right. But instead those of us who they were trying to dominate have to, yeah. Stop right. the, stop the devastation. So yeah. Yeah, it's all very deliberate. Love that. Okay, good. This is referring to me, too. So, so I, sometimes I read things like, I don't know if I'm getting this, but yeah, this is great. <laughs> if you ever happen to teach a class on South to America by itself, by, I don't know how that would be like for you, but I would love to audit that. So just throwing that out there to the universe. Teaching. I literally only ever teach my own work if I'm co-teaching with somebody else. I do not like to teach my own work. I mean, I get that. I get it. So I have to figure out a way to get the universe to make this happen. So, 
Um, so thank you for, for highlighting that. And um, again, we're kind of rounding things out here. And you, you, you mentioned, so your, your relationship with Alabama is kind of unique in that you were raised here, you know, for a few years. But then you were you're gone for a lot of time. You always came back. Um, so for those people who aren't familiar with you and your work and that that pattern for you, how is it? Kind this is kind of connected to that question I asked about leaving. How is it that you always find it in yourself to call Alabama and the South home despite not living here so much time? I you know it's where my family is. I don't come. I funny. I had um out. Uh, Alvin Bragg, who is the new DA in New York, um, he had this conversation, like, I don't know, 30 years ago, close to 30 years ago, where he was like, I understand why you think of Alabama as home. He was like, you know, like me, like all my people from Virginia, everybody on my block in Harlem came from the same like neighborhood in Virginia. Right. Mm. I said, yeah, but you all came up here. My family didn't come up here. My family was and is in Alabama, right? And there's individual people, but everybody who left either left for a job, for school or particular jobs. I don't, so that kind of great migration narration, I come from people who stayed, um, you know, like to, to borrow from Hamilton in the room where it happened, right? In the yes. place. Happened, right? Yes. And so, you know, so family is a big part of how one identifies oneself. Um, and it's also, and this is, I, I think, I think black folks tend to understand this. I think it's hard for other people to get this, but, and I know that you will get this. Like I have never experienced being hard to contemplate, like when I'm in Alabama specifically, but in the South, like, I feel like people get, okay, this is like, you know, this kind of weird, like hip hop loving intellectual black girl who <laughs> book it. Like I, I feel understood as a category of human being, right? Like movement, baby, in a way that feels very hard to explain myself. Like even sort of, you know, the fictive kinship of an informally adoptive white father and like all these things that people just say, okay, that's a thing that happens, right? Like, like there's mm-hmm. a, it has more to do, not that people have thought of, this particularly, but like that there's an openness to this, the vagaries of the way life happens and the configurations. So it feels like I can be without having to have a defensive narrative. Um, so I think that's what it is for me. And I know, and I, I say that, and I also know that it is a very difficult place for, for many people. And so I don't, I'm not saying that it's like a, you know, that the South is culturally superior. I'm just saying how it works for me. Right. It's easy for it to be home for me mm-hmm. for it to be home for everybody. I'm very aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that makes complete sense to me because I feel the same way. I mean, I, I, I wrestle with it all the time because there's some sometimes I don't necessarily feel like I fit into Alabama. But then the parts where I do, they override it. You know, it's it all. I always come back. It's people's. I have the. You know, you probably experience this too a lot. People are like, "Why are you? Why are you trying to go back? (laughs) What is this? Um, Hey, aren't you scared to go? I'm scared to be here. (laughs) 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 Yeah, right, right. So I I totally get that, and I I just think thank you. That's helping me too come to terms with it. It's just something that's just part of who I am. That part of that identity. Um, also, too, we talk about, um, especially like in the queer community and people who have to 
dispossess themselves of their fam- you know, family and all this other good stuff. Like, if you go to where you feel or you can be yourself and somehow <laughs> we're still able to do that. You know, it's just, it's not, I'm not even going to say it's like a magic. It's just, it just is. It's just, you know, this is kind of a condition of, of our lives that we are connected specifically to the land for me personally. I don't know if you, are you earthy? Are you crunchy in that way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't come from a crunchy family. Like my folks don't like grass and like, <laughs> stuff. but I, I feel, I feel, it's so funny because I was talking to a friend on the phone. I don't think I wrote this in the book, but one day she, when I was, where was I? I don't know if I, I think I was in South Carolina. And she's like, what you doing? And I was like, I'm just walking through a field in South Carolina. And she's like, excuse me, what are you doing? But yeah, it's, it's land. Um, and it's knowing what's in the land, right? Mm-hmm. The knowing, um, and it's scent, right? Like it's, it's multi-sensory. Yeah, it feels, it's funny because I was even, I had an interview in the last couple of weeks and the person said, what did you have for breakfast? And I said, I, you know, I said I had grits and turkey sausage. And she's like, oh, you just like are doing a Southern thing because of the book. And I was like, no, I'm eating breakfast. Okay, like, excuse you? <laughs> it's also, it's sensory. Yeah. Um, that, because that, that choice for breakfast is about a sensory experience that feels nurturing and nourishing absolutely absolutely amen yeah (laughs) and so uh last two questions i mean we kind of talked about it already i'm sure but i want to ask everybody these questions who comes onto the show what about being from alabama inspires you oh gosh um and feel free to wax superior like if you feel like (laughs) it is what it is so just let loose (laughs) um you know, so there was a period where I was working, it was actually, I was working on my second book and I was sort of trying to f- talk about like ways of trying to address the persistence of racial inequality. That was like the theme of the book. And I kept giving talks and I kept getting responses that were kind of hostile from these very like, you know, erudite professors who were like, why would you think that this is going to work? Why would you think it's going to work? And I'd say, um, I'm from Alabama. Mm. that's why if you if being from Birmingham doesn't give you belief in the power of social transformation where else would that's why I believe it I I I mean I I think it's like this my home inspired the globe Mm -hmm. yeah that's so there's that like it is it's an armor (laughs) that I carry through life um so, th- so there's that. Um, and there's something about, and I know I said this a little bit already, but there's something about the nature of imagination. And I think about what it meant to be, I, I think about what it meant to be enslaved and what it meant to imagine something that doesn't already exist, which is freedom, right? Like to be able to think of, to dream a world that was so far from from the reality. Mm. That thing that is sustained in so many different ways, whether it's like, you know, people selling tapes out of the back of their cars or, you know, or, you know, or create using this sort of, 
the, the detritus of like, you know, steel mills to build incredible works of art or make figuring out how to feed 12 children <laughs> with mm-hmm. the, that sense of being able to make a way out of no way feels um, for me very specifically attached to Alabama. And it is the thing that I hold on to as I move through life and get confronted over and over again with people saying, you can't do this. You can't do that. Right. Like that's the thing that is allows me to decide to make things that don't yet exist. Absolutely. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to that often too. I see that just, you know, even just over the past few weeks, you know, it's just always, there's just something about, the insistence yes. it's not even persistence it's like i insist as the state's like i insist to continue to be here and to thrive despite myself <laughs> you know? like, and nobody thinks it can be and he's like i'm it is right <laughs> period <laughs> it is so yeah yeah so i so 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 building off of that what is your hope for alabama I hope that with all that beauty and all that imagination that people just break free. You know, I just, there's something so beautiful in the, in about the humility and the good home training. But, you know, if I could say anything to you know, my people would be like, don't, you don't need to be as humble as you are. Um, And you have a right to be fully and you have so much to give the world. And so I I guess, you know, this, there's always that tension. And I think this is actually, and I actually talk about this with Eddie Glaude a lot because they have something similar, you know, this like good home training, you're not supposed to take up too much space. You're not supposed to get too big for your britches. You're not supposed to... But sometimes we do need to Mm -hmm. take up more space, you know, and you can still be humble, but also understand that what you have to give the world is really important. And so I think in a bigger sense, all of the tradition, all of the brilliance, all of the genius, all the beauty, like just be bold about it. And I think that actually is not just, that's not just creative, that's political. For sure. Deeply political. Yeah. Um, and I'm seeing that, I think we're seeing that too. I mentioned this, you, we kind of talked about it before, but the 1977 books in Montgomery, I think that they're tapping into that. Right? There is a lot of that. Um, so if you, people, if you're looking for an example, if you like, you listen to the money, you're like, what is she talking about? <laughs> like, it's out there. You just gotta, <laughs> you just gotta open your eyes and kind of dig a little bit. But yeah, tap into this hope for sure. That's a beautiful, hopeful statement. Thank you so much. Thank you. For sharing that. Um, this has been absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, and I just, we look forward to, again, we made, we made a list. We look forward to part two, Vexy thing. And so we're just <laughs> like, <laughs> No, but again, really, I really do appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with me. Take care. And that concludes my conversation with Dr. Imani Perry, Birmingham native, 
Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of the newly released book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. I am so thoroughly geeked to have had that conversation. You guys have no idea. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to. Thank you again, Imani, for chatting with me. The music featured in this episode was created by Birmingham music producer Jasmine Garfield of Art Intel Media. I'd like to thank Alabama Humanities Alliance once again for their support of this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast. Be sure to check out the great work that they're doing across the state at alabamahumanities.org. Finally, I'd like to thank you, listener, for joining in with us on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to be notified for future episodes of the show. We're counting down to the last episodes of the season with some truly inspiring guests, so don't miss out. Plug in. Until next time, be easy. Thank you.